As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. She had the three children and Scott was sitting in the front seat. He saw the gun come up and shot his mum in the back of the head. There's an expectation then that we need this to be solved, we need the community to be safe, so you take on board that pressure and, you know, 13 years down the track, you're still going. There was nothing in relation to Carmen's abduction that would have identified that crime as not being associated with the others. And it was on that basis that we conducted the uh, investigation. They were most likely related, same offender. We were fortunate with the other girls, so we got them back. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims, and what happens next. He went into a kindergarten and, and took four children and locked himself, nailed up the toilet and stayed in there. Spread petrol around, splashed the kids with petrol. In that situation, we tried, we tried to talk him out. We thought eventually we were thinking about he kept sticking his head up, so do we, do we pop him? If we shoot him, he falls down on the kids, the kids got blood, blah, blah, blah. 
because all the parents are now coming to the kindergarten and, you know, this, this one drags out for seven and a half hours. Bullet holes leading up to the laundry. Alphonse had made a run for the laundry. We surmised that he had a pistol there. So he gets uh, shot at and then uh, goes to the laundry. He's obviously wounded at this stage and we know he has a coup de grace. Someone shot him to the back of the head to finish him off. So we go to this job with the person on fire. They're in a gutter and they were writhing around and people were screaming. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, because they were actually on fire. And I can't believe I did this, but I kneeled down next to them and I sort of grabbed the person's hand and I just sort of said, it's okay, I've got the ambos. And the person spoke to me. And I can remember when she spoke, I, I didn't know who it was. And I can always remember the teeth being so white. And the person said, Narelle. These are the real voices of Australian true crime. Support us at patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime Pod and leave us a review wherever you download your podcasts. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. And I was saying to people, she's going to die, and they're going, no, she's not, don't be silly, she'll be fine. Like, no, no, seriously, she's she's going to die. She's brain dead. And, yeah, they just wouldn't... It's like, no, no, you're, you're being silly. Last week we told you about an upcoming podcast series that's going to be an in-depth look into the murder of Leanne Holland in Ipswich in 1991, the police investigation that saw Graham Stafford convicted for the murder, the two appeals that saw that conviction overturned, and the ongoing efforts of the Queensland Police Service to conceal the forensic report into their original investigation and the other persons of interest. This week we introduce you to one of the people behind that new podcast, who some of you will be very familiar with already. His name is Jamie Pultz, and he's one of the producers and hosts of the Beenham Valley Road podcast about the 2014 death of Queensland woman Kira McLaughlin. 27-year-old mother of four, Kira died at the Gold Coast University Hospital as the result of a catastrophic brain injury. Her partner told police Kira had fought with a female guest in their home two days earlier, and during that altercation, Kira had hit her head on a cupboard. The autopsy report noted 105 signs of recent injury to Kira's body, as well as the blunt force trauma to Kira's head, including significant bruising to her eyes, lips, chin, right cheek and central forehead. The report detailed extensive bruising to Kira's back, neck, shoulders, abdomen, arms and legs. In October the following year, so just over a year after her death, Kira's family asked the police for an update on the investigation. They were told it had been concluded and no charges would be laid. The fight for a coronial inquest into Kira's death is the subject of the podcast series Beenham Valley Road. Jamie Pultz is a former member of the Queensland Police Service himself and he has a lot of interesting things to say about a lot of things. But we started by talking about Kira's case and why he wanted to go back and investigate it in a podcast. You're one of those podcasts that's actually brought about an advance in the case that you've been talking about. Yeah, well, I hope so. Like they, um, they've announced they're going to do a coronial into Kira McLaughlin's death. So, I mean, that's wow. more than I could hope for, really. Um, it's undetermined when that's going to be. We can hope you know, in the next few months, but I would have liked it to have been last year, but, you know, you can't rush these things. It is the government we're dealing with. So, but, you know, if we can get a coronial happening, then surely we can shake the trees and something will fall. 
what got you involved in this case in particular? Because I know obviously you come from a policing background and then you've left the service. Yep. So what got you into this case? Well, basically, to, to put a long story short, what happened was I was in my first year in 2013 at Gympie Police Station, which is about an hour and a half north of Brisbane, and it's sort of like it's rural, you know, it's like country. And basically I was working there and I, I was exposed to um, a few incidents, domestic violence related, and the person that I was dealing with um, that was calling for service was Kira McLaughlin. At the time, she was 27. She was a mother of four. And I could relate to her because I was 27 and I had uh, one son at the time. And so when, when I was dealing with her, I wasn't dealing with the normal, you know, clients that we would deal with as, as police officers. I'm sure she had her faults and stuff like that. But for me, she was just like me, you know, 27 and a mother and I was a father and I, I could relate to her. And anyway, I dealt with the incidents that were in front of me and then probably six months later, I heard when I was sitting in Gympie, I can remember it exactly, I was sitting in the Gympie police station and oh, I heard someone say, Kira's died. And it just it just floored me because I thought, shit, this is serious, you know, like this is being a police officer is pretty serious. You deal with these things and if you don't get it right, the consequences can be this bad. And that just stuck with me ever since and I've thought about it ever since. Yeah. And then a few months later I got sent to uh, a different station and so I sort of fell out of touch with that. And then when I left the police, I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a look at this and I contacted Tom, my other police mate who left, and he remembered it. And from there, we just started reaching out to people from Facebook and where we went. It's a good story in that it also reminds people who aren't in the police about how intense the job is, because that's what it's like, I guess, the days that you rock up to work and find out that someone's died, someone that you remember really clearly for for these reasons, various reasons. You you can picture her, you, you picture her house, her home, her children, her family. Exactly. And the yep. worst has happened. Exactly. And it stays with you, you know, and, and it wasn't, it was nothing that, like, it wasn't my fault or anything. I don't, no. you know, but you do, you know, you do think, could I have done something different? You know, and Tom, Tom was the same, you know, could we have intervened in another way? And I know that the police have different programs in place now where they're trying to intervene um, with respondents, you know, earlier to see if they can put some measures in place to stop this sort of thing from happening. But at the end of the day, we will never stop domestic violence um, because there's so many variables. But we do need to educate, you know, both parties involved and try and find ways that, you know, the aggrieved, which is usually, usually not always, but usually the female, ways that they can reach out and find help because there is help there, but from my experience in, you know, doing this podcast, the hardest thing for the, for the aggrieved or, you know, the person being subjected to domestic violence is they have the hardest time actually saying they need help. It's like pride gets in the way. That's my experience anyway. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard a lot of people say the same thing, particularly when your family and friends are telling you over the course of sometimes years that they don't like him or um, I wish you'd stop going out with him, I wish you'd leave him, and you don't, yeah, it can be hard to then go to them when you're in trouble. And in your podcast, you talk to Kira's mum, Alison, a lot. Yeah. A week later, we are pulling into the driveway of Alison's house. It's a large Queenslander on a nice bit of land. It has a block base with an open carport, and the house itself sits on top. There are fruit trees all around it, and behind the carport is a garden Alison has created to honour Kira's memory. Alison looks like she sounds. She has kind, dark eyes, dark hair, and a warm smile. She looks like Kira's mum. Tom and I are aware that by talking to her, we are asking her to relive part of her life that still hurts like hell. But despite all that, she welcomes us back to her house, like her own grandkids. I can't even think of words to describe her. She was out there. She was afraid of nothing. Fearless fly. You couldn't not notice her. You know, she was loud and she was opinionated and she was unique. <laughs> Definitely would cover it, yes. We got a phone call from the next-door neighbour 
and she said, Kira's just been taken away in an ambulance. They don't think she'll be coming back. So that was all I knew. Then I had to wait for her to get to Gympie Hospital. I rang Gympie Hospital and they really couldn't tell me too much. And then next thing I find out, she's going to be flown to Gold Coast Hospital because they couldn't get her into other hospitals who had CAT scanners. They needed to do a, do a CAT scan on a brain and they didn't have one at Gympie. Yeah, so she got to the Gold Coast Hospital at 2 o'clock in the morning. That's when I spoke to the doctor and he was very apologetic and said basically that's that's it the next door neighbor who'd rung us i was in no fit state to drive so i couldn't get to the hospital so she was going to give me a lift down there so i got down there kira had actually already been declared legally dead and they were only keeping her alive for her organs at that stage how is she traveling now yeah, I, I don't think she's terrific, to be honest. Um, she, I spoke to her. I speak to her quite, you know, quite often on the phone or you know through text messaging. But um, she was. It's definitely done a lot of good for her to have the podcast. Um, she's told me that she does feel a lot of relief um, in expressing what's what's happened and having the support and having the coronial about to happen and, and you never know what will happen after that. So she does feel good about that. But I think at the same time it. Now that it's stopped and I've finished the podcast for the moment until there's something else to report on, I, I think that's kind of made her feel, I don't know, like deflated maybe. Um, yeah. It's all stopped and she doesn't want anyone to forget about Kira, which is, you know, rightfully so. And she doesn't want everyone just to move on, you know, just to go, okay, that was one podcast, let's let's go to the next one. She wants people to remember Kira and she doesn't want to be, Alison doesn't want pity, she just wants people to remember Kira and to hopefully avoid situations like this in the future. Did you launch a campaign just before Christmas? I think I read on your social media for Alison and the kids. So Alison, does she have Kira's four kids now? No, Alice, uh, Kira's ex-husband before all this happened has the four ah, kids. Right. Um, but Alison is, is involved with the, with, the, with the grandkids and actually Katie, who is one of the guests on my podcast um, in episode nine, Watch the World Burn, she was Jason's ex of like 13 years. Anyway, she's the one who started the fundraiser for Alison and the grandkids. For those of our listeners who haven't heard you yet, and I know they will rush to listen to your podcast. So Jason's the name you've given to the alleged perpetrator. Yep. So his ex-partner is actually now involved in supporting Kira's children. Yeah, because it's, it's quite a, um, a tangled rope, this one. Katie was Jason's partner at the time and Katie and Kira became friends. And then Katie uh, noticed that Kira and uh, Jason started flirting or showing signs of a relationship. So that happened under her nose and it was a classic example of, you know, domestic violence because you're just he just does what he wants anyway so it's quite it's quite a weird dynamic but yeah katie's got involved and she's raised money for allison to buy christmas presents for her kids uh, grandkids and yeah which is just it's really good to see at the beginning of your podcast we met allison mm -hmm. kira's mum and she couldn't even say this man's name she couldn't even use the fake name that you'd given him she was calling him it and she didn't know anything about where he was at that time. She seemed so lost and so hopeless. And then you popped up and you were sort of a ray of hope in that it felt like somebody cared and somebody was offering to try and do something. And then you were able to give her some news that was shocking, but it was sort of positive, wasn't it, the news that you gave her about Jason's location? Yeah, because she had been, uh, you know, unaware of that. And when I called her to say, do you know where Jason is at the moment? She didn't know. And I, I'd found out through a different source and I confirmed that by calling prisoner locations that he was incarcerated. And I didn't know what for and I don't know how much longer for, but anyway, he was in jail and that was a great sign of relief. It was that little bit step closer, I guess, for Alison to put in, you know, into perspective for your listeners for a lack of a bit of a word, this guy's been walking around in the public without this incident catching up with him and to, f to find out that he was in jail was just like a breath of fresh air for her to think that, okay, it might not be for my daughter's death but it's for something. So I'll take some relief in that. 
and that's how she felt. And that for that period of time, he wasn't bashing anyone else. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, just for your listeners who haven't heard the podcast, it's kind of unlike being on Valley Roads, unlike anyone else's um, in the way that it's organic and raw. You know, it's unpolished, I suppose. Like I've done this with Tom myself. We haven't had, you know, Channel 7 or anything behind us. It's just been us and we've done literally everything from recording to interviewing to producing and, you know, there's pros and cons to that. And so, you know, you got to bear with the with the bit of a amateurishness, I guess. But, <laughs> you know, we told the story and that's the other thing. We didn't actually have much of a narrative. Just if anyone's going to go back and start this this podcast series, we didn't have any narrative to start with. We, you know, I wasn't a cop anymore, so I couldn't go on the systems and just look it up. I had to just find it out through, you know, legal ways which is from facebook and meeting people and they're telling me their little story and so really we had no idea and we've pieced this together just from a very organic way so if any of your listeners are going to jump in there just bear that in mind yeah well that's what i like about it because we're the same we're we're not supported by any like television network or newspaper or anything like that we we just do it completely ourselves as well and you call your media company 610 media why is that 610 is the job code in the Queensland Police Service for community assistance. We just thought when we're thinking of names, it sort of stuck out to me. So when you would go to a job, the ra- the police radio operator would say to you over the radio, okay, we've got, we got a 610 over in Melbourne, and that's what you 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 know it's a community assistance job. So I thought, well, that's a good that's a good idea. Let's just do but you know But so why did you why did you leave the police service? Well, I guess I at the time, I didn't want to admit it, but at the time I was burnt out and I was only in there for, you know, just under four years, but that's pretty common in this, in that job that you do burn out. It's like any job. You have your little periods where you burn out and it's the same with, you know, apprentices in every industry. There's like a, a time where people, you know, commonly burn out and where I was at in the police was that time. And, you know, I had a pretty rough first year, but I've got through that, started enjoying it, and then I just started burning out. And I I could have just taken, you know, annual leave or sick leave or whatever and, you know, pushed through. But I had a family business offer and, you know, I just thought, why not? I'm just going to go for it. And, you know, I wouldn't be doing this podcast, that's for sure, if I was still in the police. So and it's opened up a whole other avenue of podcasts for me. So I'm kind of happy about it now. Yeah, so you've still got the interest in that community service that took you into policing, but you found another outlet for it. Exactly. Like I, I enjoyed the job, but there's just so much red tape that goes along with it and, you know, bullshit for lack of a better word. Um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's not just you rock up and help someone. You've you, There's so many other things to it. There's so much paperwork and um, stress, I guess, and you have to have the right type of personality that, can just leave it all at the door and come home and forget about it. But I would just, you know, tweak on the fact that I've got so much work to do and court documents to prepare and, you know, just stress me out. So. Yeah, no, I get it. I'm really bad at admin, so I totally get that. <laughs> and you're not the first person to say that either, that the paperwork is what is just such a drag. Oh, I, I can't even put it into words. There is so much paperwork, like every single interaction with the person. And not only just one place, you've actually got to write it in your notebook and then you go back and write it on a computer and then you've got to do a different system and it's just, yeah, it's um, it's crazy. I mean, I can see why they have to have it. It's for, you know, covering, it's a bit of CYA, which is cover your ass and it's also <laughs> for um future jobs they know what's going on which is definitely important you know they say it's how domestic violence works really so they'll calculate how many jobs of service are are going to that address they'll work out what's happening there are there the key things like property damage and injury to people's is there um, threatening behavior what kind of what kind of abuse is happening here and they can give it a a priority based on the previous jobs so i can understand why you have to do all that paperwork so the next officer knows what they're coming into um but it does take a lot of time so and you don't really know that until you go and so also also then when somebody goes to court they have all of this material to back them up right because we always people always tell us you know you you should call the police every time you should get that stuff on record so that when you want to go and get an avo or whatever it is go 
to family court. You've got all of this stuff on record. Oh, 100%. And also, if anyone's in this situation, which I know there are plenty of people who are, if you are in a situation where you think you're the subject of domestic violence, start taking your own evidence. Write down times, get a notepad, you know, that you're not going to get caught with. Write a notepad with, you know, dates, times and entries of what's happening. Um, even if you can use your voice recorder on your phone, anything. And that just that's not just domestic violence, that's any crime. If you can document, you're going to help, you know, the court, you're going to help the police officers who come. It just it makes a whole world of difference. So that's a bit of advice I have for people. It's good advice because I think, yeah, we underestimate how seriously that is taken. We think, really, if I just write that down, keep my own diary, but it, that is actual evidence, isn't it? Oh, of course it is because, you know, the, the judge is presiding over these cases and they, they, they've only got what we've given them or what the, you know, the applicant has given them. They're not there for the, the 24 hours a day that you're in that relationship. So they really need to see it in its entirety. And that's the way to do it is by writing. Like we used to go to jobs and there'd be people who have like Katie, for example, in my podcast, one of the exes of this Jason fella. She's got a 13-page summary, very brief summary of everything she went through. And it's incredible. She's kept everything, you know. She's written down times and phone calls and what they were and what happened. And, I mean, that's just, it makes everybody's job so much easier in so many ways. So, and it's something to look back on too for her. And while you're giving advice, Mm -hmm. we recently had a lady on our show who is trying to get uh, an inquest going. And we've had a few people on the show before who have managed to do that, but I never thought to ask them, how do you do that? And this lady, her uh, second cousin was murdered in 1991 and it's an unsolved. And so still they are trying to get something done about it. Get an inquest. Yeah. Yeah. And so she started a, a campaign, letter writing. She started her own podcast, all of these things. What's your advice? How do you, how do you go about it? That's a great question. And I think what, what we did, so Peter Boyce is a pretty well-known lawyer up here and he's had a lot to do with the Daniel Morecambe case and he's been working pro bono on um, Kira McLaughlin's case. And basically he's been putting pressure on the coroner's office, so he's been writing to the coroner. And also what we found that I think really pushed this one over the line was we went on ABC radio and we spoke to Annie Gaffney and she then reached out to the coroner's office and asked for a reply. And all of a sudden they turn around and say, yeah, we're going to do an inquest. Like it's, so I think it was the media, to be honest with you. I think the media yeah. pushed that over the line and then away we go. Well, we, it hasn't happened yet, but that's, that's how we did it. We just went on ABC and, and said we wanted a coronial inquest and then they went and asked the coroner, why haven't there been an inquest yet? And all of a sudden they're doing an inquest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because in Victoria we've got the most recent example of the Trace podcast that brought about a second inquest in the Maria James case. So, yeah, you're probably right, you know. Well, it's media. It's yep. it's public interest. I mean, so she started like the campaign to get signatures and all that. Um, so it is definitely public interest. So that's something you need to address. But, yeah, the media can can approach um, the direct family members to write to the coroner's office. Um, if you can get the police to start pursuing that, that line of inquiries as well, uh, it's not always mm. easy. But, yeah, I don't know if there's any – I don't know if there's any right or wrong way to get a coronial. I think you just got to yell it from the rooftops until someone listens. Mm. But. Now, what's going on with your mate Tom, Tom Daunt? Now, is he – he's not involved in the podcast anymore, is that right? No, no, that's right. So about episode five, uh, Missing Pieces, um, and, and Tom and I both discuss mental health pretty openly on the podcast, but yep. at this one point uh, I noticed Tom was, you know, withdrawing a little bit and um, I know that he's had, you know, anxiety and and a bit of OCD and PTSD, what, what he says himself anyway on, on one of our blog episodes, Tear It Down. He explains all of that. But I just noticed he was withdrawing a bit and at one point I said, mate, you know, do you want to pull out? And uh, he said, yeah, I do. And 
he just it was just too much at the time it wasn't just the content we were doing it was just the workload as you know it's like it's very time consuming like i'm spending 20 hours a week at least and he was you know feeling the feeling that as well so he um he stepped out and we've just recently um I spoke to Tom and uh, he's, yeah, he's going to step out of the business entirely. Um, he's not going to be yeah, writing or doing podcasts anytime soon. Just, just to focus on him, on his health and you know, his family. And yeah. So unfortunately mental health can sort of rear its ugly head, you know, anytime at once. And he had to take a step back and it's pretty brave of him to actually say that. And, you know, for thousands of people to hear, so I take my hat off to him for that. Yeah, it is, and it's also great that you guys have got that relationship and that you have that understanding that you're able to see the signs and start that conversation. And you know, yeah, and look, it was a bit difficult to start with. It was that, always that little bit awkward, you know. You could have kind of got to say, "Mate, is everything okay?" And they say, "Yeah," and then you're like, "No, something is up," and then it just flowed from there. But you know, he's definitely not weak. It's just um, that's a stereotype that we really want to get, you know, we want to get rid of that, that, you know, mental health is like breaking your arm. If you've got a broken arm, you go and get it treated. And he needs to, his own words were, I need to step back and just make sure I'm being a responsible parent, you know, being present for work and, um, you know, being just uh, there for your family because, you know, if you if you know anything about mental health, you just go inside yourself and you just, yeah, it can just be, it can be messy. So he's done the right thing, you know, for himself and for his family. So I hope, yeah. hope that he gets better as soon as possible and he can start writing again because he's, he's actually a, um, a journalist by trade and he's a good writer. So it's a good gift he's got. Yeah, he's definitely done the right thing, which will more likely enable him to be able to come back into writing than try to push through. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, good, exactly. Good idea. Now, you are moving on to another case which is close to our hearts on this show mm. and I'm looking really forward to hearing it, very forward to hearing it because I was going to do a follow-up to an episode we did and then I decided not to because I thought, no, you guys are going to cover it so much better than I could ever. <laughs> it is the Graham Stafford slash Leanne Holland case. Yeah. Exactly. When can we look forward to the launch of your podcast into Who Killed Leanne Holland? April 1st is the date we're uh, looking at um, this year, 2020. Could give or take a few weeks. But, yeah, basically if you want to know how that all came about, it was through Bean and Valley Road. We started, you know, recording Bean and Valley Road and then Graham Crowley, who authored the book Who Killed Leanne Holland, and there's also an ex-Queensland police detective and also an ex-private investigator. He was hired by the Stafford family in 92 to investigate this case. And anyway, after I don't know how long he, he was working for them, but after that he just kept doing, he kept going and he's been looking at it ever since. And he felt like an injustice had been done involving Graham Stafford. So basically he wrote the book and he's done a lot of research. He's put a lot of work into it and he reached out to me and through through the podcast, he started offering me some advice and some mentorship about my podcast, about investigating, about, you know, all sorts of things. And we've become friends, even though we've never met on in person, we've become, you know, friends. And then we started talking about, you know, doing a podcast together. And so, you know, there we are. He's currently nomading around Australia with his wife. <laughs> Um, when he comes back, it's going to be his writing at the moment. And when he when he comes back, we're going to be hitting the studio and um, getting that podcast out. So April 1st is what we're looking at. And uh, it's going to have unprecedented access. We've got Graham Stafford and Joe Crowley, the defence barrister, Graham Crowley, Greg Carey from the 4BC, who was quite involved in it. Yeah, that's what I mean. And Graham Crowley has been so great with us as well. While he thinks that an injustice was done, He's going to be very open to the fact that if he finds any evidence that supports Graham Stafford being the killer, then he will present that and he will stand by it. But just on the other, on the flip side, if he finds evidence that's going to prove otherwise, he'll present that too. And he's going to make that promise for everybody to hear that. And it sounds like you live somewhere beautiful. I can hear all the beautiful birds in the background and... I live in a place called the Sunshine Coast, which is in Queensland, and it's I think it's about 29 degrees at the moment. It's muggy, though. It's really hot. 
I'm about to go to the beach. So, yeah, it's... It can't complain. Sounds like life is good. All right, well, I'm going to hold you up one more minute. I'm sure the kids are standing by to go out and about. Thank you so much for your time, Jamie. No worries, Michelle. Thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, go ahead and listen to Bean and Valley Road once you're done listening to all of Australian true crime. After the break, an update from one of Beanham Valley Road's most memorable guests. But first, thank you to the following patrons, Cherie, Bryony Haig, Laura Riley, Danielle Hand, Emma Hoffman and Olivia G. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Thank you to these patrons, VD Brown, Courtney Toomer, Catherine Vasili, and Tari Edwards. As Jamie mentioned before the break, in episode nine of Beanham Valley Road, he spoke to Katie, who'd been in a relationship with the man who was with Kira McLaughlin on the night she died. Katie's description of their relationship was harrowing to listen to, and I've always wondered how she's going now and how she felt about telling her story publicly. I've thrown myself in the deep end by going back to TAFE to get my grade 12 equivalent and it's all on computers. The Wednesday to Friday was very overwhelming because I, just, I don't understand computers at all. When I finished grade 12, computers were actually only just being introduced. Yeah, same. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, we had a computer room that you would go in like one hour a week every class, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's what we had. And now my kids do everything on iPads at school. Don't remind me. I'm going to get my two middle children. They've got through the school, luckily. I can pay it. I'll set a payment plan and stuff like that. They've got to get iPads now too. So. No, it's full on, isn't it? It's insane. It really is. But you'll pick it up. It's getting there. It's getting there. I just need to remember to take a step back and don't overwhelm myself so much with it and take a breather and then go back to it. And I'm getting the hang of it. (laughs) Do you want to do anything specifically after that? Hopefully the grades I get, passing grades that I get, will help me be able to get into the Bachelor of Education. Oh, great. Well, it was always before shit hit the fan and all the rest of it, what I was planning on doing when I finished grade 12 was the Bachelor of Education. My goal was to be a secondary English teacher. Yeah, wonderful. But as life changes and stuff like that, and you grow a dislike towards people and stuff like that, you turn more towards animals. So back in 2014, I started studying online for 
a certificate for in veterinary nursing. But then again, life happened and I had to put that on the back burner. How are you feeling about the podcast? I mean, I know it's probably a long time ago now that you recorded your interview with Jamie <laughs> and that it came out and all that. But... Oh, I feel terrible. Like, I'm glad that I um, was able to help or shed some light on some things for him or whatnot. But I just, I feel terrible that I swore so much. It's a problem I have. I, I don't even know I'm doing it. My husband, my kids call me up on it all the time. <laughs> when I'm extremely nervous, I swear a lot. <laughs> and it's, it, yeah. <laughs> and I think it takes away a lot of credibility for that part of the podcast for him. And I feel terrible because, you know, that's a side to that story that needs to really be understood to understand what happened to Kira and all the rest of it. So. I think it was a pretty intense conversation you were having. I, I didn't think it took away oh, from yeah. anything. And also my kids are always saying to me, you couldn't go one day without swearing, could you, Mum? So I think it's pretty normal and that's not what I thought when I finished that episode. I didn't think, wow, she swore a lot. That was not what I was thinking about. No, a lot of people that obviously don't understand or haven't, uh, how would you put it, I'd say investigated those sorts of situations and things, things like that. A lot of people live life with rose-coloured glasses on so they don't understand or comprehend the amount of emotion, the amount of trauma, the amount of abuse and things like that that someone in that sort of situation has been through. Yeah. Had you spoken much about all of that trauma in a while? Not really, no. Um, I speak with my husband a lot about it. Uh, I have a handful of close-knit friends, uh, my family even. Back in 2013 when I escaped, um, my mum was over the moon, just very, very scared and worried that I'd go back again during the amount of times I did leave and unfortunately got roped back in by the lies and the crap from not just himself but his family as well, especially his mother and older sister, mm. always, always putting it down as, you know, it takes two to tango and things like that and the children deserve their have their dad in their life and things like that. Like, yeah, I do understand that. They do, but he does not consider himself or he doesn't. He constantly accused me of cheating and things like that and never, and every time he was abusing me and things like that, he would say that the children aren't his. So quite frankly, I I believe he has no rights whatsoever. It's not a right. To have a child is a privilege and a responsibility. I remember you saying that he would wake up in the morning and accuse you of cheating the night before when you were in bed with him the whole night. Yep, yeah. Yeah, that happened pretty much on a daily basis for about, uh, that went on for about 11, 12 years. God, that's a, yeah. that's a huge part of your life, isn't it? Oh, it is. <laughs> A huge part of my life, a huge regret, but also in turn it's a massive life lesson learned to teach my children, especially my boys, not to be anything like that, my girl, to stand up for herself and speak up. How do you recover from that, from 12 years of that level of anxiety and abuse? Like where do you start? I'm I'm still on the recovery path actually. My husband is a great help to that. Um, I I honestly I I can't answer that question for everyone, but for me I I've learned to detach emotionally from when I have to speak about it. Yeah. Um. I I suffer extreme depression and extreme social anxiety. Uh, I have PTSD and agoraphobia, so I have to force myself to actually leave the house. It makes me sick to even think of leaving the house. My anxiety goes through the roof. I've had multiple panic attacks over it and all the rest of it, but I've found I was slowly working on it. I guess one of the biggest ways to just keep pushing yourself and 
look forward. I found for myself meditation and getting back into my martial arts is what has helped me. Yeah, I can see that. I've never been into martial arts, but I can see how I can. <laughs> you know, I can. I can understand from what I've read and heard that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I found meditation helped me with my mind because of the depression. I suffer extreme suicidal thoughts and tendencies as well. So, <laughs> I was I was in a very dark place in about 2014. And my husband um, got in contact with his old meditation instructor and so we started going to meditation once a week. Mm. And that taught me to control my thoughts. So when I was having negative thoughts or anything like that, in saying you pretty much grab them and throw them away until you tell yourself that's not what you need to be listening to right now and now you start thinking more positive thoughts. So, yeah, that, I found that's what helped me. How did you go trusting another man again and, and trusting a relationship again? Well, with my husband, it was it was easy because we've always been lifelong friends. Like we lost contact when he left high school, and but we actually dated back in high school. So high school sweethearts. <laughs> Back in 2011, when I escaped him uh, once before, yeah, I got in contact with some old friends and stuff, and I found my husband on Facebook and messaged him and asked him how he was going, things like that. Mm. And then Jason got his calls back in, and I went back. And then in 2013, when all hell broke loose and him and Kira and all the rest of it, and I was awake for five weeks straight, couldn't sleep, I was afraid of being killed in my sleep, so, you know, to help keep me awake so I could just watch the kids sleep and things like that, I got back on Facebook and I contacted them. I bit my tongue and I bit my pride a lot because I hate asking for help. And so I asked for help. I asked my um, childhood friend first, but unfortunately she was over in England at the time. <laughs> and... Then suggested people you know popped up and my husband popped up and I was like, okay, this is going to sound really weird, but I need help. I'm so sorry to be blunt, but I'm trying to escape and all the rest of it. And he, yeah, that was it. We were talking for five weeks straight. And then he helped me and my children escape and be safe. It's did not start off as a relationship at all. It was just friends and a place to stay for two weeks while I was searching for a house myself and my children. But as the weeks went on, it just progressed back to where we left, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure at the time... People were saying to you, don't get into another relationship. You've just gotten out of this terrible, abusive relationship. You're not ready. This is a bad yeah. idea. And yet here we are six, seven years later and it's still great. Actually, I had nobody around then. I I was unfortunately still had his, the Jason's mum oh. and sisters trying to manipulate me in uh, any way that they could, but I just turned around and said, enough's enough, and I was doing what was best for my children. I got them in school. We were in a stable place. That's what mattered to me was getting my children back into their routine, making sure they're stable and have somewhere and uh, have food in all the time. That was one of the biggest, biggest things that just blew my mind was the kids were able to eat every day. I was never worrying about whether or not they're going to eat or what they're going to eat or if they're going to get in trouble for eating. He used food as a, a tool of abuse with the kids? No, no, no. Money was yeah. the biggest problem or one of the biggest problems. We never had enough money because he was a drug addict and an alcoholic. God, I can't imagine that. I mean, you know, we all have problems, but I can't imagine not being able to feed our kids in Australia because <laughs> because their dad's so selfish. Yeah, well, that was one of the biggest things. We always had to make sure he was always happy. Yeah. Otherwise, 
but even then, even when he had what he wanted, we still copped it. So, How did they recover? How have they recovered? Have you seen behavioural issues with them or emotional issues? Um, no. You know, they're, they're doing good. I that When we escaped in 2013, we just – my main priority was stability and – all that and then after that the priority was seeking counselling and stuff like that um, and trying to do things by the book because I had he I gave him uh, strict conditions that he could call between certain times to the kids every night and things like that he'd call the kids but then he'd ask as the elders to call me names and things like that and then it got to the point where it's like you know what enough is enough Mm. I'm going to do this the proper way so I contacted mediation and he would not comply so because I know how terrible the family court system is and things like that I was not dragging my children through that and I was not forcing them to do anything they did not want to do so they saw a counsellor for a year Yes, unfortunately, it took them away from school a couple of times, but they're quick learners. They're resilient. Yeah. And, no, they – I don't know how to explain that their recovery is pretty much not turning out like that, mm. being the negative and – Turning them into positives, helping their friends, helping their family members. Well, it sounds like you've worked really hard on it. I mean, I don't know. What, Doing good. Yeah. School. What else you could have yeah. done? It sounds like you've. Yeah. Well, the main thing was making sure that they were always safe. I don't hide anything from my children. What was happening in 2013, by the way, when you say that everything just got really bad? What... Um, 2013 was when he was with Kira. I think July was when um, Jason moved over there and August was uh, my birthday. He demanded I give him what I had left of my money <laughs> so that he could buy me a birthday present and things like that. And I'm like, I'm not even good at that. Why don't you give him my birthday? See, I, I would have imagined, I imagined that once he started seeing Kira and moved over there that he would leave you alone, that he left. Oh, hell no. Oh. Hell no. <laughs> I still copped I still copped all the abuse, I still copped the whinging, the bitching and as soon as the kids would get on the school bus at eight o'clock in the morning, he'd be right over, um, still abusing me, still accusing me. Um just yeah, treating me like an absolute piece of shit and all the rest of it. Yeah. No, I still copped it all and still got sexually assaulted as well Mm. because, you know, if Kira had her kids home and stuff like that and he wasn't getting what he wanted, well, he'd come over and, yeah, use me instead. Jason's dad called me Saturday. I think it was the 19th of July, mm. 2014. It would have been about lunchtime, around 11.30, 12 o'clock, because I was outside hanging up my children's washing. Jason's dad called me and told me Kira was dead. At first, I did not believe him. And then he told me everything Jason had told him leading up to Kerry's death. Mm. I was a mess for four days. My children thought they were misbehaving or had done something wrong. My husband and I explained to the children that, no, you haven't done anything wrong. Um, I've just heard some really devastating news. I'm trying to cope with it at the moment. And we were figuring out how we were going to let them know. So I called my mum and my stepdad, who were living up that way at the time, 
I messaged her. I, I messaged her first, sorry, and I said, "Is what I'm hearing is what I'm hearing fucking true?" She called me instantly and goes, "How the fuck do you know?" And I told her and all the rest of it, and she turned around to me in tears, and she goes, "This is what your dad and I have always been scared to hear. This is every time we're watching the news. This is our biggest fear. This is what we have been afraid of." afraid that would happen to you. And I asked my mum, I said, what the fuck do I do with this information, with everything I've just been told? What the fuck do I do? She said, call the police station, ask for the investigating officer and tell them everything. And then I said, what do I do about telling the kids because I'm an absolute mess, mum, and they don't. They're getting scared and they're getting stressed because they think they've done something wrong, but they haven't, and I don't know how to say it to them. She just turned around to me and said, well, you've never told, never kept anything from them before. Never kept anything from them before. Don't keep this from them either because as said, when they get older and you turn around and tell them all of it and the timeline and all that, they're going to turn around and go, why didn't you tell us? So I, don't, I don't believe in lying to my children. I don't make them promises because I know there is going to be the potential that I cannot keep them. So I sat them down and I told them, and yes, it upset them. They were quite distraught. And they, the eldest actually, straight away said he did it. When I called the investigating officer, he asked if I would be willing to do a statement. I said yes. For about a month to two months, I was being picked up on a daily basis by a detective from the local police station close to me. And I was going through the 13 years of diaries and calendars and crap that I have, compressed it down to a 12 to 13 page dot point file for them and gave them all the information in regards to what I was told. Mm. And after that, I've heard nothing more. Really? Yep. So that would have been 2014, I guess. Yes, that was, yeah, that was in 2014. God. Right after. Yeah. And when was the last time you saw Jason? Did you see him again after Kira died? Uh, Hell no. Hell no. <laughs> no way. I've heard things along the grapevine here and there, but um, obviously he's never gone to jail for what he deserves to be going to jail for. But when uh, when Jamie talked about it in the podcast, that was the first you'd heard about it as well? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, I hear things along the grapevine. I bet, because you would have you would still have mutual friends or something. Like, no, no, no mutual friends. No, I've cut all contacts, all ties. Right. Because I don't. That's that's my past. That I do not want that affecting my children anymore. Yeah. You know, they've got their own lives. They deserve to live their own lives. They deserve to build themselves a better future than what they would have had had we have kept any of them in our life. Mm. Gosh, amazing, so, amazing story. <laughs> and am- yeah, you know, amazing life that you've built now. Yeah, like I like to think so. I like to hope so. Yeah. After having someone actively try and destroy you like that. Mentally, physically, emotionally. Yeah. In every way, shape, possible form. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it is a long recovery process. Mm. It is a very, very long road. Constantly being told that you're this, you're that, you're a slut, you're a whore, you know, you're a cheater, you sneak out and all the rest of it. When all I did was try and help him, try and 
build him up and make him a better person and all the rest of it and then in the process destroying myself. How about the drive that you had before Christmas to raise money for Alison and the kids? How did that go? <laughs> yes, I was trying to stay anonymous <laughs> as possible. But no, that blew my mind. That was just amazing. That puts that little bit of faith back in humanity. Well, finding out you were behind it was amazing to me. I thought, God, as if, <laughs> as if she doesn't have enough to do in her life. That's so... <laughs> That's so thoughtful. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, I, I know what it's like. I've been there. I've been in that boat where how the heck am I going to even give the kids a Christmas this year and things like that. And I just thought, well, you know, I do, I do know those children. Those children were friends with my children. And I do miss them. And I thought, well, and then grandma, whatever she likes to be called, deserves to give them a Christmas that Kara would be happy yeah. to see. From one mum to another. Yeah. How much did you raise? How'd it go? Oh, goodness, I can't remember, but I know it hit well over the mark. I think it was near over $1,000. So you wanted 200 That's what you were aiming for? <laughs> yeah, that's all I was aiming for, just to help her out a little bit. <laughs> and then it just it snowballed. I'm just like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> good people. So many good people in this story. That's that's the thing about it. So many really, yeah. really deeply good people in this story. Yeah. And all of you have this one person in common, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, I can't thank you enough for going through this story again, but I know that I'm not the only listener to Beenham Valley Road thinking about you and thinking, how's Katie going? I hope she's going well. Yeah. And I hope that you didn't regret talking on the podcast. And I didn't mean about the swearing at all. All I meant was like putting your story <laughs> out there, putting yourself out there, you know, for a lot of people is like a bit of a shock to the system to tell your story mm, to some yeah. one guy and then suddenly have people saying, hey, I heard you on that podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It throws, it throws a lot of people off, uh, especially when I've got to meet new people and all the rest of it. It actually threw a lot of the class that I'm in at TAFE, it threw a lot of them off. Yeah, right. Because I don't look like someone that's got four kids now and um, <laughs> been through hell and back. <laughs> yeah. I don't come off as someone like that. I'm loud and infectious and boisterous and that's all a part of my anxiety. <laughs> Putting on a smile, but deep down inside I'm screaming, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of us are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And when you, you know, when you turn around and you know step outside of your shell a little bit and you speak to some others and stuff like that, you realise, yeah, you know, you're not the only one sitting there going, oh, "How the heck am I going to get through this?" Yeah. Oh, you're going to be such a great teacher. You're going to be such a good high school teacher. <laughs> if this podcast has raised issues for you and you'd like to speak to somebody about it you can call 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. Don't forget to download Beenham Valley Road wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.